Amen. Well, welcome to Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Robbie Baxter. I'm the director of assimilation here. Our pastor, Cameron Barham, he is away this week on a pastor's retreat, so do keep him in prayer this week that he'd be refreshed at his time away. We are so grateful to the Lord for his ministry to us. All right, well, if you would be turning in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter, we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 2. And this is really part two of what we're calling uh, the Pilgrim's Warning. As we talk about um, really the theme uh, of 2 Peter, which is uh, warning against false teaching, remember that Peter is probably writing this letter towards the end of his life. He knows that the, the race that has been set before him by the Lord is, is coming to a close now. And uh, his, his heart's desire is really to leave the churches that he's been ministering to uh, with a firm foundation, with, a, with an understanding of what it is that the Lord has called them to in the gospel and, and who they are as, as Christ's people. Um, and so he's warning them against some of the, the, the more obvious uh, aspects of false teaching. And, and we're going to be looking at that uh, this morning a little bit more closely. Remember last week that uh, we talked about you know, some of the things that, that draw us to false teaching and how sometimes uh, we recognize that it, it's false teaching makes us the center of our own stories, doesn't it? Uh, we know that um, the way we view the world, the way we view God, um, the way we view ourselves is so, is so shaped by the stories that we hear and stories that we tell ourselves or stories that are just kind of out there. Um, nothing is really neutral when it comes down to it, uh, whether it's you know, things we're viewing on television, uh, the media that we, that we consume, um, or even just our own thoughts, our internal dialogue is telling us a story about who we are. Um, and that shapes the way we, we view our lives, and, and even it shapes the way sometimes we view suffering. We, we would never view suffering um, as, as the way in which we kind of lean into the gospel and know God better and grow in our Christian maturity if it weren't for the fact that the Lord told us this is the way in which we imitate Jesus and come to know him better. Um, and that's a story that the Lord has told us. And so we, we see that our lives are shaped by a story that we're being told, and, and we need to recognize that false teaching does the same thing. And the thing that draws us to false teaching is a story about ourselves. It puts us at the center of our own stories. And so that's kind of the context for what we're going to look at today. Um, it, it sets the context for you know, what we need to be aware of and what Peter is trying to help us to, to be mindful of. Um, and, and remember that, that one of the things that the false teaching was particularly doing in the churches that Peter was writing to was it was telling the people that they didn't really need to worry so much about Jesus' return. I don't know whether this is because they totally denied that Jesus was coming back at all or whether they just kind of put that on the periphery of things that you know, Christians don't need to worry so much about. But be that as it may, one of the aspects of that was that the Christians didn't worry so much about that and it made them kind of loose and not so much worried about whether they were growing in Christian maturity, whether they were really understanding what the gospel meant for the way that they lived out their ordinary everyday lives. And we see that that kind of made themselves, again, the center of their own stories. And, and self-indulgence crept in. Um, that's kind of the heart of what Peter's going to be talking about this morning as we look at verses 17 through 22. Self-indulgence. Really, uh, it's just another word for the freedom that the false teachers were promising these people. They were saying, well, there's freedom for you now in Christ. Probably they quoted Paul, you shall not be subject to another yoke of, of, of slavery, without really remembering that Jesus said, if you're... If you, um, if you sin, you are a slave to sin. And so they, they didn't tie those aspects of the, of the gospel match together. And so they, they, they got people off the rails, but they promised them freedom. They promised them uh, a good life doing just what they wanted to do. And that was very appealing to them. And so we see instead that what Peter calls us to, really what the gospel calls us to, is to live out, our, out of our union with Christ. Um, we've been called to a different kind of life. And again, that's a, that's a different story. So as we head on to this, I would ask you right off the bat a, a question. 
How would you finish this statement? I would be truly free if, and then fill in the blank. I would be truly free if, and we could fill, in, fill that in with, with lots of things. I'd be truly free, and I remember this was my attitude in, in, in college. I'd be truly free if I could just graduate, get this degree, and get a good job. I'd be truly free for some of us if I could just find a spouse. I'd be truly free if I could just get that promotion. I'd be truly free if I could just get that house. I'd be truly free if I could just get that pension. I'd be truly free if, and on and on and on it goes. Um, we fill these things in, and, and we make it the center of kind of what it means for us to be free, to experience the good life. And, and we see that what Peter is calling us to, really what the gospel calls us to, is to suffer. And that's not how we would normally fill in that question, is it? I'd be truly free if I could follow Jesus in the path of suffering. No, well, that's not how really anybody with any sense, at least in this world, thinks. And so we recognize that that's a different kind of a story. Um, and, and, and again, if we, if we lose sight of that, if we lose sight of the, what the gospel is really calling us to do and really what we've been invited into um, by, by Jesus himself, then false teaching is going to be everywhere and it's going to be very easy to fall for it because false teaching is going to say, well, how you fill in that question, I'd be truly free if whatever it is for you, you can get that if you just do A, B, and C. If you just make yourself the center of the story, if you just forget all that stuff about Jesus coming again and, and conforming your lives to his and, and recognizing that in the path of suffering you've come to know him better and experience him better than you do now, you could just do this and, and that'd be great. You can, you can get what you truly want. And so that's what Peter's pushing to us to, to recognize, to recognize that aspect in false teaching and be on guard against it. Um, the purpose of life, this is uh, what um, one theologian said, the purpose of life is not to find your freedom, but to find your master. And just as a gifted musician finds freedom and fulfillment by putting himself or herself under the discipline of a gifted artist or an athlete or a great coach, so the believer finds true freedom and fulfillment under the authority of Jesus Christ. So again, that's an aspect of what Peter is trying to help us to see. So let's, let's see it from the text itself. This is 2 Peter 2, 17 through 22. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Well, that's some very searching language, and we see how serious the matter is, especially for Peter. And we see also that the search for freedom has been a constant in, in human life, hasn't it? We, we know this to be true from even our own experience. What, uh, and that's what really made this false teaching so appealing and, and so attractive. It, it promised real freedom. And at bottom, this freedom was really self-indulgence, just do what you want. The freedom to live is we think best, uh, to do what we want to do and, and not really fear any consequences because of it. But we see also that this freedom is an illusion. It offers the promise of release from obligation, from responsibilities, from coercion, or what we might think as domination. But in reality, self-indulgence is miserably enslaving. 
Perhaps the false teachers, again, they, they might have quoted Paul. He said this to the Galatians, for freedom, Christ has set you free. That's true. And so he said, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. But that they didn't probably remind people of what Jesus said, and he said this in John. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So what's the freedom that, that Christ has given to us? The freedom from sin. And why must we be on guard against another yoke of slavery? Because our old sin nature is constantly on the lookout for its old chains. It seeks opportunities in our distrust of God uh, to attach itself to the vain pursuit of corrupting passions. Uh, I, this I was struck home to me recently as I've been going through uh, the book of Deuteronomy and my devotions. And Deuteronomy opens the first chapter, and Moses is rehearsing to the people of Israel how, how good God has been to them. He says, the Lord draw you, drew you out of Egypt. He, he helped you cross the Red Sea. He, he provided for you in the wilderness. You, you lacked nothing. And you said to the Lord, you brought us out here to kill us. And, and that really revealed the heart of the Israelites. In the face of all God's goodness to them, they distrusted him. They thought that he wasn't in it for their best interests. He, they thought that at best, he was not worthy of their trust. At best, he was probably just this, this mean father figure who had his arms crossed and gave them commandments just because he liked to see them trip up. And sometimes that's our view of God too. And, and when that's our view of God, false teaching that promises us Freedom for self-indulgence is really attractive because it promises us that we can actually do the sorts of things that we always wanted to do, and we don't have to worry about that stuffy old God who doesn't really have our best interests at heart. He just wants to see us trip up. Um, he brought us out into the wilderness to kill us in, in spite of all the good things that we've seen him do, in, in spite of all his fatherly care for us. And so our old nature is constantly on the lookout um, for its old chains in our very distrust uh, of the Lord, in our very distrust of his good promises. And the, the fact, though, is that this self-indulgence is really the opposite of freedom. We often can't imagine it uh, to be so. Uh, certainly, the world does not think to define freedom as freedom from sin. That's not how we, in our old nature, uh, defined freedom. Freedom from the self-directed life that tried to find goodness and happiness in our own imaginings. And on the contrary, the world would inspire us with hymns to our own power and our own ability to know what is best. Think of that famous hymn um, or, or poem that's often used as a hymn, a functional hymn, really, Invictus. And, and one of the lines goes, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And we can certainly feel for Mr. Henley, the man who wrote that poem, he had a really difficult, difficult life, but he drew entirely the wrong conclusion from his circumstances. Freedom is not found in becoming the master of ourselves by our own lights and reason, but in being mastered by Christ, whose authority is absolute, true, and whose grace and love is unending. You see, sin is the ruin and, and misery of the soul. Were, were God to remove his, his restraining hand against the sin contemplated and, and cherished in the hearts of wicked people, um, there would be nothing more needed to make the world a perfectly miserable place. It's enslaving to its core. And, and self-indulgence, therefore, is not freedom but slavery. It subjects us to corruption. If you live according to the flesh, Paul reminded the Romans, you will die. Self-indulgence is not liberation, but execution at the heart of it. It's, it's the, the pursuit of things that are very, the very opposite of, our, of, of life, really, uh, of our good. 
And we often don't feel it to be that way. And so these false teachers were like waterless springs or mere mists in front of the storms. Uh, imagine if you are going through, um, I don't know, a desert in a caravan, and you see a mirage in the distance, and it looks like this wonderful well, or you see uh, in the distance what looks like a wonderful lake or pond, and you think, oh, finally, I I'm finally going to get to the place where I can quench my thirst, and then you reach it, and all it is is just sand, and empty sand in your hands, nothing that can quench your thirst. That's what these false teachers are like. They, they seem to be offering something that we just so much need to make ourselves whole, to be, to be quenched with that desire that we have for something more than, than what we have in our own lives by our own power. And yet when it comes right down to it, it's just empty sand, an empty shadow that just always is, is elusive and, and, and nothing that we can grasp onto. And so to follow in their way would be like to follow a guide through an empty desert only to arrive at a dry riverbed with, river, riverbed with nothing to, to quench our thirst. Or really like to hope for rain, to, to see a storm cloud in the, in the distance and know that's just what you need to, to water your crops and then to only see a mist that just passes right by. That's the startling kind of imagery that, that Peter uses here. Well, who is particularly susceptible to this kind of teaching? Peter tells us that particularly susceptible are, are new believers, people who are just barely escaping from those who live in error. Um, that is, the promises of the old life are, are being given a new spin uh, by these false teachers, and it's attracted to people who still feel really strongly the tug of the old life. Um, discipleship is still new to them. They're still learning. They're still kind of getting their feet about the ways in which the Lord is faithful to those who call upon him, and not always faithful in the way that we expect, not always faithful according to our timetable or with the sorts of gifts that we want in that moment. Sometimes we have to learn to love the things that God commands and to delight in what he promises. And, and, and that learning takes some time. And so particularly susceptible to this kind of teaching are people who are just barely kind of getting their legs in that world, who are just kind of figuring out what that means and what that looks like. But that prompts, I think, an important question for, for us. How are we doing as we are growing in the Lord? How are we doing as we cultivate the things of the Lord? growing in the knowledge of the Lord? How are we doing in kind of getting our legs in these things and, and loving the things that God commands and desiring what he promises? Again, that's, that's not something that just comes like that. I, I've mentioned this before. I don't remember if it was in a sermon, certainly in several of the small groups, um, but, but many of us knew and loved Dr. Larson. And I remember hearing a testimony that this is something, this is a way in which the Lord often works through saints in ways that we don't often see in the moment. But I remember hearing a testimony from someone who said that as he was getting ready to move to Pennsylvania with his wife, um, he was having an estate sale and, and selling many of the possessions that, that he had accumulated in many, many years of, of service to uh, missionary service in, in Australia and, and other place, places in Africa. And as people were coming up to him with, with his possessions, things that he had accumulated and had a lot of sentimental value, I'm sure, and they would say, well, what's this? Tell me the story behind this. And he'd be able to say, oh, let me tell you, you know, about how this Aborigine tribe in, in, in Australia gave me this or, or whatever it was. And it had a lot of sentimental value for him. It, it really, things that sort of evidence God's faithfulness to him and goodness to him. And he was having to give a lot of it away. And you can imagine how hard that would have been, um, how hard that is to even just to kind of have to move away and, and be thrust into this new life by, by things that seem so contrary to God's good promises as his wife is ill and, and, and just life is, is all up in a row. And, but the person who, who, who noticed this said that the thing that really struck her was that Dr. Larson was able to do it so joyfully that he didn't hold these things so tightly that it was uh, difficult for him to do, that, that he sort of held the things of this world loosely. And she was just so struck about how 
She couldn't do that. And I, I'm telling you right now, I probably couldn't do that. I'd be angry. Uh, I'd, I'd have a really difficult time doing that. And that really struck me closely because I recognized that that probably wasn't the case for Dr. Larson, too, when he was young. That, that's the evidence of the Lord working through his heart as he cultivates these things, as he digs deep into the, what the Lord has called him to be as his son. None of us wakes up when we become a Christian and, whoop, that's, that's it, sanctification right there, and, and I can love all the things that God commands. I'm going to really dig down deep into to, to the Christian life. I'm really going to strive to love my neighbor as myself. I'm really going to uh, love the church. I'm going to serve in all these ways. I'm going to be transparent about where, I, where, where I'm really at. I'm not going to hold the things of this world closely. No, all of us have to learn it. Dr. Larson had to learn it, and, and we, we do too. And so that, that's kind of, but, but think, about how, think about how that's a good example of kind of how the Lord is faithful to, to, to do that in our lives. You know, the, us reading the Bible, us, us taking time to prepare our hearts for worship. In the moment, maybe it doesn't seem like it yields a lot of dividends. Like you're putting all this investment into something and, and you just want to be, you know, in worship, just so overcome with emotion and it's, it's wonderful. Sometimes the Lord is good and sometimes that does happen, but oftentimes it happens imperceptibly. But then you get to the end of your life or, or you, you, you meet a trial, you, you're called into a way of suffering and, and you find that that actually has done something for you, that the Lord is really near and close and you're able to walk through these things in a way that gives God glory and brings joy to your own heart. It's like Cameron has often reminded us that, that not only are we terrible arbiters of our own sanctification, but that, we, that, that more happens when we, when we fail to dig down deep into the means of grace, when we fail to read our Bibles or we fail to pray, we fail to cultivate these things, that, that we really come into seasons of life where maybe we don't have the resources that otherwise we would do. And that doesn't mean the Lord isn't faithful to us. He's, he's always faithful to keep us. He, 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 is, he ensures our perseverance. But how much more so is that true for those of us who are able to dig down deep into these things and to recognize that God is good, that, that he really meets us in and through these things. And so um, let, let's keep that in mind. That the gospel is good news, but it doesn't promise us convenience or, or a shortcut to godliness. And, and, and so any false teaching that, that promises us those things seems really attractive in the moment. So we need to be on guard about that. That's kind of what Peter is, is helping us to see. He's also helping us to see that truth and error are at stake. Uh, Peter is concerned with, with guarding um, against error uh, those of us who'd be attracted to our old life. And, and, and make no mistake, that's just what it is. It, it's error. That, that, too, is an unpopular opinion. But here we have it from, from Peter's pen. Really, the false teachers offered a kind of freedom from, from the limits of discipleship. Because Jesus was not coming back, or, or at least that's not something really to worry about, according to them, there was no need to let out the implications of our union with him. And, and that was their error. And in consequence, they lived lives of, of wickedness. They, they did the opposite work of faithful shepherds who are charged to lead God's people by teaching and especially by example um, away from the enslaving corruptions of sinful passion. Um, many years ago in, in seminary, I came across a book, um, and, and the, the man who wrote the foreword to it just had this wonderful uh, paragraph that just struck me to the, to the core. And he says this, um, The pastor's difficult task is to justify the Christian ideal of love between man and woman in a cynical world that constantly taints and degrades and exploits. Is the long, hard struggle for integrity and idealism really possible, and is it worthwhile? This is the question that the Christian is continually having to ask himself in Africa, in Europe, in America. And it is a question that merely happens at the present time to find its focus in the area of sexual behavior. It applies equally 
to every aspect of the life of man where the way of Christ challenges the convenient compromises that human nature has made with primitive impulse and practical convenience. And I think that's a helpful way to, to think about it. Oftentimes we make convenient compromises with primitive impulse, the things that we just want to do, the things of our old nature that just pop up. You, you see somebody cut in front of you on the freeway and just your primitive impulse is to, to not like that person very much, not to have very much love in your heart for that person, not to be neighborly. Or you, 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 you see something on the internet and the primitive impulse is to, I want to click there, I want to, I want to go there. Or you see something else and your primitive impulse is to, is to do the things that just satisfy your own ego, to, to, to follow in the way of what seems in the moment to be freedom, but is not freedom at all, it's really enslaving. And practical convenience too, that's often how, apart from Christ, we are tempted to make the decisions of our life, what's most convenient to me, rather than think about, what helps me most to engage my neighbor? What helps me most to grow in my love for the church and my love for the Lord? What helps me most to, to grow in discipleship? Oftentimes, instead, we make decisions on the basis of what's just most convenient to me, what's easiest. And so the pastor's difficult task and really the faithful shepherd's difficult task, and this applies also to all of us who have some sort of shepherding role, which is if you're a Christian, you do in some form or another, whether it's to your children or to your neighbor or just to those who are looking and you don't even realize they're looking. You have a shepherding role. The pastor's difficult task is to, to help people to see that the long, hard struggle for integrity really is worth it, that it's worthwhile. And so we need to be on guard against any sort of self-indulgence that, that, is, that is promoted in the name of the gospel and encouraged and demonstrated in, in false teaching. And, and, and you see here that the problem is more than just uh, wrong ideas. Um, here we see that it's possible to have a right conceptual knowledge of the truth, but have no real experiential knowledge of it. To see clearly where the truth is, but still to be in love with the promises and lies of our sinful nature. So there is freedom in discipleship, that is very true, there, but it's not the freedom of the flesh or the desires of the flesh. And, and sometimes we see, I think we can all know this is true from our own experiences, sometimes we see that sinful passions sometimes disguise themselves in good intentions, whether it's for a happy family life or for justice or for peace or for rest or for truth, but intentions that still put um, ourselves at the center of our own story. And then self-indulgence is just an easy step from there. We, we hardly notice when we take it. And I think that teaches us an important truth about Christian discipleship that we should remember from time to time. Christian discipleship is not mainly about self-improvement for a better life. Like, you know, if you read your Bible this week, you'll be guaranteed an easy week. Um, or it's not uh, mainly about self-improvement so that we don't have conflicts at work or conflicts in our family or that we can have the American dream, you know, uh, a nice house with a white picket fence and no really big problems. Um, that's not what Christian discipleship is about. But how often we are tempted to trade the demands of really knowing Jesus, of really following him, of, of picking up our crosses and following him, for, for cheap platitudes that promise a happier family life, say. How easy it is to be consumers, uh, picking what works for us and the self-centered goals that we have set and disregarding the difficult work of discipleship. You see, we live in an age which teaches us that the most important thing is the self, and, and it's easy to follow into, follow into that. And so we need to be on guard against false teaching, which in the name of the gospel makes ourselves the center of our own stories. So I'd ask you this question. In what areas of life has the call to discipleship been particularly difficult for you recently? And also, this is worth following up on to think about this too, in what, ways of, or what areas of life have you particularly seen God's goodness and faithfulness to you? 
You see, to live our lives with Christ at the center is the result of the new birth. It's not something that we do in our own strength. It's the outworking of the Holy Spirit's influence um, in our lives as we, as we live out of our union with Christ. And so, therefore, the most important thing is not that we know the correct doctrinal formulations or the right gospel buzzwords. The most important thing is that we have a new nature by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, it, it is possible to have a superficial knowledge of Christ and his ways without really having received a new nature that loves him and, and hates sin. It's possible to conform ourselves, or our behavior for a time, to certain expectations without really aiming our sights against the sinful nature. Um, and it's even possible, as we see from 2 Peter 17 through 22, it's even possible to be raised to a position of leadership in the church without really loving the Lord, without really um, having anything of eternal value for ourselves or with which to offer others. And that's a very dangerous place to be. God will not allow the work of his kingdom to, to be jeopardized by teaching and by examples that would enslave again his people to the very thing he died to free them from. And so, therefore, be diligent uh, that the teaching you embrace is the gospel of Christ, not the so-called freedom of self-indulgence, but the announcement, the announcement that sin will no longer have dominion over you, dominion over those who are in Christ. And, and, and let's be careful here. This does not mean that perfectionism is the standard. It does not mean that our lives are shaped um, by an immediate sanctification, as I noted before. It doesn't mean that we are able, even in this moment, if the Lord required it, uh, to give away our things so freely and, and even with joy. But it does mean that, increasing, that in increasing degrees, our lives are shaped by the gospel story. Our lives are shaped by what the Lord has called us to. And more and more, we come to love the Lord and, and hate our sin. More and more, we come to see that the craziest thing has happened. That, that before we would have heard the gospel call to love the Lord and, and, and follow him even in the way of suffering. And, and now that seems that just the very way in which we, we can know him better. And we're willing to do it. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's inspired by a new nature. Not, not something that in our old selves we would have loved and, and, and followed in. You see in the way that Peter talks about how false teaching encourages people to go back to the very ways and patterns of sin that they used to follow in in their old lives. He has some very striking imagery for it, doesn't he? he? He calls it a dog returning to its own vomit or a pig returning to wallow in the mire. But you see, a dog that returns to its own vomit isn't doing something that's really contrary to the nature of dogs, is it? Or a pig that goes back to wallow in the mud doesn't do what's contrary to the nature of pigs. And in the same way, a sinful person who goes back to his own wickedness doesn't do anything that's not natural to the nature of sinful people. So you see, if we're not to be people who go back to wallow in the sinful patterns of our own lives, we need a new nature. We need to be something other than what we once were apart from Christ. And this means, this is the encouraging thing, that if you are in Christ, you indeed have been raised to a new light and life. Your hope is now in him. You are learning more and more each day to trust him and obey him. And, importantly, your failures are not the end of the story. His mercy is new each morning. And therefore, therefore, do not allow false teachers to allure you back to the sinful patterns of your old life by vain promises that that is the way of true freedom. Stand firm, stand like a rock on a rock in the conviction that Christ, the way of Christ, challenging though it may be to our primitive impulses and practical convenience, is the better way. It's, it's the way of life. F.F. F. Bruce um, talks about this in relation to Hebrews 6, but it has 
uh, application to our own passage uh, as well. He says, people are frequently immunized against a disease by being inoculated with a mild form of it or with a related but milder disease. And in the spiritual realm, experience suggests that it is possible to be immunized against Christianity by being inoculated with something which, for the time being, looks so like the real thing that it is generally mistaken for it. It's a question of people who see clearly where the truth lies and perhaps for a period conform to it, but then, for one reason or another, renounce it. God has pledged himself to pardon all the truly repentant, but scripture and experience alike suggests that it is possible for human beings to arrive at a state of heart and life where they can no longer repent. And the, the reason for that very terrifying thought is to wake us up to the reality of who we are in Christ, to wake us up to the life and death nature uh, of discipleship, to wake us up to the false freedom that's offered in, in false teaching that would really enslave us to our old passions. Um, we, we can come to know the Lord for a while, or so it seems, but really just be in love with the way in which we seem to think that he makes us the center of our own stories. We may get tired um, of, of all the work that it takes to, to get the things we most love, and maybe for a while the gospel seems like just the way to get it, that, that Jesus is for us and, and he loves us and, and he wants the best for us, can sometimes be used on our sinful way of thinking as, as just making ourselves the center of the story, to get what we really want apart from discipleship with him. But if that's the case, we're not going to hear the call to suffer joyfully in the path of Christ and know that, that he really does in that um, have everything for us and, and it is calling us to experience him better. Uh, that, that's not going to be appealing to us and we're not going to hold on. We're not going to hold fast. And when, when we make ourselves the center of our story and try to get Jesus to be the, the guy who just has the, the muscle to make it happen, we're not going to, we're not going to be very um, convinced that when we hear the call to follow Jesus, despite our practical convenience, or despite the, the, the primitive impulse, despite the practical convenience, um, that it's really worth it. And so let's be on guard against false teaching, which would make, make ourselves the center of our own story. And instead, let's, let's dig deep into the center of the story in which, um, in which Christ is, in which we've been called in, we've been folded into the purposes of God to make the family of God grow bigger and glorify God in our dependence upon, upon him. So what does 2 Peter 2, 17 through 22 teach us? It teaches us that in Christ, we have been set free from the enslaving passions of our old nature. And we must therefore resist, resist any teaching that would encourage us to become re-entangled with the sinful patterns of our old lives. May the Lord help us to do this better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your people. Um, Lord, who in ourselves we did follow our old passions. We were enslaved to the old nature. It promised us so much, Lord, and yet we found at the end of it all that making ourselves the center of our own story, of following the way of self-indulgence was just an empty shadow. It promised so much. It promised to quench our thirst, Lord, but it could not. And yet you have called us to a better way. You've redeemed us by the blood of Jesus, and you freed us from the power of the devil and our old nature, and you've given us true life. Yes, Lord, we've tasted and seen that you are good. And Lord, I ask that we would continue to walk in that way, that you would hold us fast, that we would learn uh, to walk with new legs, with this new nature, that more and more we would come to love what you command and really desire from the heart what you promise. That would shape the way we view ourselves, shape the way we view our stories and what happens to us, um, that it would even give us joy in the hard, difficult road of suffering, knowing that you are for us and that you are making us new. 
And most importantly, that you have promised to come back and you are making all things new in Christ. And the new heavens and new earth will be the place that we were made for, to live with you and enjoy you forever. May that be, Lord, the story that is constantly on our minds and may it um, help us to evaluate biblically and, and wisely the other stories that we hear, that we have something to offer the world that is different than um, the old stories that we used to believe. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.